Good evening. It is good to see each of you. It's good to be together to worship God. If you will, take your Bibles and we'll begin at 1 John, the fourth chapter, in just a few moments. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. Our young ladies, uh, the older ones this morning, uh, led the Bible class and the ladies' Bible class and uh, we want to again thank them for the wonderful work that they are doing this past week. They also spoke uh, to a group of ladies that came out in the evening, and it was their mothers and, and grandmothers and just various ladies that this group invited to come together, and they led a wonderful period of devotion and service then. And we appreciate you young ladies, and we want you to go through your life uh, worshiping God and being very active in whatever opportunities that God gives you to do. Uh, be sure, just as Bob has already done this evening, be very prayerful, be fervent in your prayers this week uh, for the hearts to be open in El Salvador. Uh, be praying for safety. Uh, be praying for spiritual success. Uh, be praying for the uh, physical success of the medical mission, that there uh, is a tremendous benevolent nature about this trip, as well as definitely an evangelistic nature. And if you will... Keep that in your prayers every day this week and, of course, especially next week as the group will be uh, gone. The group will be leaving out early Saturday morning. We appreciate each one of you that are going to be a part of that, whether it's uh, present on that trip or supporting it in your prayers and in your encouragement and also encouraging the families while they are here and have members of their families that are away. Also, uh, we are glad Wednesday night to have... Uh, the response of Colton. I love that guy. <laughs> I might be just a little bit uh, biased, but uh, he's a fine young man, and we're, we're proud of him. And it's always good when we see our young people wanting to serve God. Uh, I have a request. This morning after Bible class, I lost my Bible. I preached out of another Bible, and after worship, I lost that Bible. I don't know if this is a trick or if I'm really that irresponsible, but if anybody has seen either of my two Bibles, even a preacher only has so many Bibles. It's been years since I preached uh, from this one. So if anybody knows where uh, either of my other Bibles are, I really could use those this coming week. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you could just keep your eyes open and help the irresponsible preacher out here. Uh, we appreciate also, I meant to mention last uh, Sunday evening, and, and I, I just failed to do it. We appreciate so much those of you adults and young people that gave of their time at the Young at Heart Banquet last Saturday, a week ago last night. Uh, I understand that it was a tremendous banquet. Those people definitely deserve honor that were invited to come and be a part of that banquet. We love you. We appreciate those of you that were honored that night, and we appreciate those that gave their time to honor those individuals in such a wonderful fashion. I've continued to hear so many good things, and we appreciate the ladies that have organized that and Griff for speaking at that and, and our young people for serving at that. It's wonderful when we can encourage and honor each other and, and serve each other, and that was a wonderful evening to do that. It's been said that you can tell a lot about an individual if you look and see who are their friends and whom they count as enemies. You know, tonight, if we were simply to take that approach as we look at the topic of Satan, enough would be said. Who are friends of Satan and who are enemies of Satan? And if we recognize Satan's enemies and Satan's friends, we've recognized so much about Satan himself. 
the movie that's called Such a Stir Recently of the Crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and it's wonderful that that is a talk around the, the schools and around the workplaces and around the community, the, the suffering or the passion of Jesus Christ. One of the things that has stirred as much discussion perhaps as any other area of it is the way Mel Gibson chose to give a person as a symbolism of evil. And of course, we don't know what Satan looks like exactly. We see a picture of him in Genesis, the third chapter, as after the punishment is given to him, he will crawl as a serpent upon his belly. So we have a few glimpses in the Scripture, but nevertheless, I don't think Mel Gibson was trying to say in that movie, and I'm not trying to justify his movie and say everything in the movie was scriptural. I'm just simply making introductory comments here about the fact that we have to appreciate that Mel's goal in placing a figure to represent evil was he said, I wanted people to recognize that the event of the crucifixion was more than a physical death of Jesus Christ. I wanted folks to recognize that there was a spiritual war going on that day. And that is very noteworthy. Whether he achieved that the way you and I might be comfortable with his achievement of it, still the idea to say we do need to represent that there is an enemy and that there, there is spiritual warfare going on. And so tonight, as we think about Satan, we'll give some introductory remarks about who is Satan, and we'll go to several passages to develop that. And then finally, tonight, we'll look at least some of the efforts that he gave to destroy the perfect Lamb of God. First, as we think about the origin of Satan, we recognize immediately that Satan is not deity. In other words, if he were deity, he would be equal with God. God is omnipotent. In other words, he's all-powerful. 1 John, the fourth chapter and verse 4, this is the way God identifies himself and his power and the power of Satan. He says, "Year of God, little children. And by the way, you might want to take out your pew Bibles because you'll have to look up the references. And some of them will be going fast. I'm sorry. Uh, just shooting straight with you. First uh, John 4 and 4. Year of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So immediately God recognizes uh, or gives information to the people through John here to say, listen, we're not equal. If you have God living in your life, you have something, someone much more powerful than Satan living in your life because he's not as powerful as God. So he can't be deity. If he was, he would be of equal power with God. A second thing that we see is we go to Revelations, the 20th chapter, and in verse 2 and in verse 10, we see that Satan can't be omnipresent, and God can. For example, in Revelations 20 and verse 2, he says, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan and bound him a thousand years. If he's omnipresent, what would be the use of binding here if he could also be present everywhere else as God can? Well, he's not omnipresent. As we read over in verse 10 also, we see that he was cast into a lake of fire. If he could not be bound, if he could not be held to one place, it would be impossible to bind him in that sense. So we see that he's not equal with God in that sense. He's also not omniscient. omniscient. As we look to John the 10th chapter in verse 28 and 29, and this deals with all knowing. Notice how he says in John 10, talking about the blessing that we have staying with a God that is omniscient. He is all knowing. He knows how to hold us in his hand. And so he writes in John 10 and verse 28, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me is greater than all. And no one is able to pluck them out of the father's hand. 
You see, he's not all-knowing. He hasn't figured this out. In other words, he's limited in his knowledge, and we ought to literally, not as an expression of speech, but literally praise God that he is not all-knowing, and God is all-knowing. God knows how to hold us in his hand, and if we leave the hand of God, it's not because Satan knew something God didn't know. It's because we chose ourselves to leave God. Now, as we think about the origin of Satan, immediately we're, we recognize he's not deity. If he was deity, he would be eternal. He may be immortal, but he's not eternal. Someone that's eternal has always existed. No beginning, no ending. Now, angels definitely had a beginning, whereas they may perhaps probably do not have an ending. And so, definitely, he had to be created. And when we look at the summary in Genesis, the last chapter, verse 1, of the creation, God looks at all that he created and said, it is good. So if we know everything that God created originated to be good, then what we must conclude is that somewhere along the way, Satan and other angels must have decided to leave the way of righteousness and fall. And so what I'd like to do is just kind of the same pace we did just a moment ago. I'd like to read to you four passages, and there are many others, that show us how these heavenly hosts, if you will, chose to leave God. When we go back to Job, the fourth chapter, Elphaz, in one of his speeches, says in verse 18, Behold, he put no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. And so here we see a reference in God's Word to angels doing something that's very foolish. Now, when those that refused in Matthew, the 25th chapter, to give uh, clothing to those that were naked and water to those that are thirsty and visiting the sick, and they were going to hear, depart from me, do you remember in verse 41, they were going to go to a group. Who was that group? He says, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and for his angels. So now in Matthew 25, something is revealed to us. Not only do we have angels that have fallen, assuming also that Satan has been one that has fallen, but it seems that Satan has taken somewhat of the leadership role of these fallen angels. Now, in 2 Peter, the second chapter in verse 4, it identifies not only foolishness, but even identifies the sin. 2 Peter 2 and 4 says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be preserved unto judgment. And so we see the casting down, we see the fact that they sinned, hence the casting down, and even reserved for a place of judgment themselves. Building on this same thing, we see in the book of Jude, in the sixth verse, and the angels which kept not their first estate. Did you notice that? The angels that kept not their first estate. In other words, these angels had a former dwelling place. They had a place, as the next phrase says, but left their own habitation. God created them in a place and a place that supported them. In other words, it was the home that they were designed to live in, to dwell in. But they chose, through their sin, through their folly, they chose to go to another estate, to another place outside of what was designed to be their habitation. And he says, He hath reserved an everlasting chains under darkness and to the judgment of the great day. Now, that's just a few thoughts to consider about the origin of Satan and the host that surrounds Satan. But now let's bring this 
up to the point of time, how does this affect you and I? When we go back to Genesis, the first chapter, and you might want to turn there. Genesis, the first chapter. We see the story of creation, and the emphasis of the story of creation in Genesis 1 is upon God. If you'll read the first 34 verses of the Bible, that would be the first chapter along with three verses into Genesis 2. And those 34 verses, over 30 times, you're going to see the name God being mentioned. Why? God wanted us to know as we open His divine book that He is the Creator. Emphasis on that over and over and over. Genesis 2 is a story of creation also. This time, the same story is told with an emphasis on man. God wanted us to recognize that He made us more special than any of the other creation that was upon this earth. We're not like dogs and cats and bears and tigers and lions. God breathed into man a living soul. And Genesis 2 reminds us of this and also tells us that He has placed us to have dominion over the earth. But then, once that's settled, who is God? Who is man? Genesis 3, God felt it this important for us to recognize we have an enemy. Would He be a loving God and a caring God and an all-wise God if He did not tell us, listen, you humans... You have an enemy that's out to destroy you every day. He warns us of that as we open the Scriptures. We go to Genesis, the third chapter, and we see that this subtle serpent in verse 1 enters into the domain of Adam and Eve, and he begins to tempt them. And as we go to verse 6, we see the way that he tempts Eve is by taking her to this tree. Now, if you'll note also on the screen, we have reference to 1 John, the second chapter, verse 15 through 17. And in that passage, we learn that there are three areas, three principles, if you will, that all sin can fall into these three areas. It's the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Now, as you think about those three, think about how Satan used all three of those areas against Eve. Friends, it's, it's, it's really sad when you think about he pulled out not the double barrel, but the triple barrel on her, and he unloaded every avenue of temptation at this one setting. This is what verse 6 says. He's taught, brought her over, and, and he's urging her to, to eat of this or to touch this fruit, and notice how it's described. Verse 6. Genesis 3. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's lust of the flesh, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, that's lust of the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, that's the pride of life. This is going to make me wise. What did she do at that point? She took the fruit thereof and did eat. And so from there we know that Adam also sinned. And from there we know that God gathered them together because just as we've been studying the last two Sunday mornings, God is a righteous God. He is a just God. He cannot turn the head the other way. Do you realize if there's ever been a time in human history where we'd say, surely, surely he'll turn his head the other way. You know, back to this morning, how the parenting illustration... You know how the child just blatantly disobeys instead of the parent punishing the child, the parent turns around and says, strike one. 
And that always really gets under my skin. But then, you know, the kid breaks something else down the aisle in Kroger and the mother says, strike two. Well, you know what? God wouldn't do that. These people didn't even have a past precedent to go on. You know, they couldn't say, well, I know my grandparents warned me about sin. They couldn't say, you know, my parents, I I saw in their life the difficulty that sin brought into their life. They didn't have this to go on. All they had to go upon uh, was the knowledge of God. And I'm not saying that's too little. That's plenty. That's what all of us need to go upon is the knowledge of God. They didn't have anything in the past to, to lean upon so far as past experience. And you know what God did? He came in the very first time they sinned and he said, I have to hold you accountable for this sin. This is going to be the punishments. And he passes out the punishments, and that brings us to Genesis, the third chapter in verse 15, which was very interesting, uh, the way this was symbolized in the Passion of the Christ recently in the movie. But Genesis 3 and 15 says, I'll put enmity between thee, this is him speaking to Satan, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Now let's stop for just a moment. The seed of Satan, we uh, suppose, would definitely be the world. The seed of woman is going to be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would ultimately be born of Mary, a woman. And he says, there's going to be a great difference between you two. And it's going to strike at the very heart of the next phrase. Talking about Jesus, he shall bruise your head, talking to Satan, and thou shalt bruise his heel. When an individual bruises or lies in wait would be another way to translate this, the head of a snake, what do we usually envision? We usually envision the head of the snake being crushed. That is the imagery that's painted here in this prophecy that would take place thousands of years later. What is the imagery here for what Satan would do to Jesus. He'd bruise his heel. Now, a crucifixion, most of us would not think of just a little bite on the heel. But when we think of three days later at the open tomb, we realize that from that, Satan takes a deathly blow and Jesus Christ resurrects with what we might say only scars. And so the very first prophecy in the Scriptures that we have of things that were literally going to take place on Calvary and the open tomb, they begin as early as Genesis, the third chapter. And so from this, we see also, as as we're summing up this point here, I want you to note this. Tonight, we are simply learning about Satan. I need to know about my enemy The first thing that I want us to see tonight, other than the origin of him, is he's serious about you and I. And it's been that way from the very beginning. That has been Satan's nature since the Garden of Eden. And if I think I'm some kind of exception, I'm fooling myself, placing myself in a deadly trap. Satan not only wants us, but he also wanted Jesus. Go to Matthew, the fourth chapter. In Matthew, the fourth chapter, we have the temptation... of Jesus, and no doubt this was not the first time Jesus was ever tempted. But it is interesting that we have just read, as we come out of Matthew, the third chapter, of Jesus' baptisms. And if you'll remember, 
It's believed that the silence of heaven was broken after 30 years. We know that the silence of heaven was broken. And here's what was said at the very end. Jesus has just been baptized. And in Matthew, the third chapter, in verse 17, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus is led by the Spirit. Note that. The Spirit, in other words, it's God's will that He be led into this wilderness. It wasn't that Jesus was just walking around and saying, I think I'll go to the wilderness. It was God's will for Him to be led in that wilderness and to fast for 40 days. And at the end of that fasting for 40 days, the tempter, it's interesting to note Satan is called the tempter, verse 3, came to Him and said, If thou be the Son of God. Isn't that interesting? Just a few days earlier, a few weeks earlier, the silence of heaven is broken. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Satan comes up almost taunting him, saying, If you are the Son of God, and keep in mind he's hungry, he hasn't eaten for 40 days, he says, Command that these stones be made bread. And Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Notice how this falls under that category of the lust of the flesh. This man's hungry. Isn't it interesting the way Satan will oftentimes tempt us in areas that in and of themselves it's not sin, but the way he wants us to fulfill that area is sin. Is it a sin to be hungry? Absolutely not. If it was, all of us would be in trouble. But how was he to fulfill this hunger? He uses the idea of sonship. If you are the Son of God, surely that gives you some kind of rights. Why don't you exercise your rights as the Son of God? Make those stones right there become bread. Wouldn't that be delicious? You know it would be delicious. How is Jesus going to answer this? Yes, he does quote Scripture, and that's powerful. But did you note the emphasis of the Scripture that he quoted? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In a sense, Satan is saying, exercise your rights as the Son of God. And Jesus is saying, submit. I'm going to submit to God. I don't live by bread alone. I live by humbling myself, submitting myself to the words that flow from the Almighty God's lips. Friends, we learn a powerful lesson here as we think about Jesus in a situation where Satan is trying to cause him to be the lamb instead of without blemish, He's wanting Jesus to become the lamb that is blemished. He wants him, for, for Paul not to later be able to write in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He wants that, Satan wants that to turn into a situation where he'd say, he did no sin, so therefore he could not become sin for us. And so how does he work on Jesus? He works on him in the area of His Sonship. You and I need to be careful that in our lives we don't start demanding things and fulfilling desires 
in a way that is against God's will to fulfill those desires. The second area that we see here, as, as we begin in verse 5, then the devil takes him to the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it's written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. Now Jesus says to him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. What's Satan trying to do here? Here, he's working on Jesus in the area of trust. You can imagine a faithful Jew going into the holy city. That would have been something that you and I probably can't really identify with because we don't have that cultural experience in our past. But Jesus could think back when he was 12 years old and how his family every year would make that trek into the city and to think now he's being led to the holy city and he's being in the temple, the worship of God, the house of God. He's in this house. And now and now the idea that Satan conveys to him, if you are the Son of God, are you really? I know a way you could prove it to everybody. Call on him and his angels as he promised he'd do to save you as you jump from this pinnacle, from this high point. Have you ever noticed how some people think that whenever they do the daring, that's when they prove their greatest trust? But have you also noticed that if we truly trust someone, we don't ever have to tempt them to begin with? Think about that. Who is it that we test in life? I wonder how many detectives have gotten a phone call that sounds something like this. Hey, um, my wife... I trust her 100%. I'd still like for you to follow her. Oh, yeah, I trust her. I know she's faithful to me. I'd still like for you to get some pictures. Just follow her around for a few weeks. Who do we test? We only test people we don't trust. Satan is coming up to Jesus, and he's saying, test him out. See if he'll do what he says he's going to do. My guess is that this was the easiest of the three for Jesus. Now, that's just David Shannon's guess. But I can just imagine Jesus saying, do you want me to test to see if my heavenly Father is faithful? Oh, no. I know my heavenly Father is faithful. But then he offers a third temptation. Verse 8, Again, the devil takes him up to an exceeding high mountain, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he says to him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then says Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The very purpose for Jesus coming into this earth is to be able to redeem the world to be able to offer salvation to a lost and dying world. And now Satan strikes at the very purpose that Jesus is on this earth. And he says, let me show you the world and the glory of them. 
Friends, I don't know. I can't imagine what that must have been like. But some way, Jesus is up in this high point and Satan is able to flash these scenes before him of these powerful world uh, uh, kingdoms. Maybe it was beauty. Maybe it was knowledge. Maybe it was the strong athletes. Maybe it was strong empires. Maybe it was arenas of knowledge. All of these things are passing before the presence of Jesus. And Jesus is thinking, I've come to save these, wor- wor- these uh, kingdoms. And Satan says, just worship me. Just fall down and worship me and I'll give you all that. That's tempting. You mean I could accomplish my purpose without tasting the bitter taste of the cross? I would think that would be very tempting. Now, Satan, what do I have to do in order for you to give me these things? Just worship. Worship is to pour out adoration. You want me to fall down and adore you? Oh, no. That's only for God. Satan leaves. The angels come and minister to our Lamb of God, spotless, without blemish. Let's close from reading from Zechariah. And this one is on the screen. And if, as we look here, Joshua is not the Joshua that we read about going over in the Canaan's land. This is another Joshua, and a vision is shown to Zechariah. And what I want you to see as we close this, think about where we've been in this lesson. We've looked at the origin of Satan, and then we've looked how Satan has worked against mankind from the very beginning. Satan worked against Jesus Christ while he was on this earth. But I want us to see here as we close this evening, he also has been working against the whole scheme of redemption, I suppose, as long as he's been evil. And here's one insight to that. We're reading in Zechariah, the third chapter, and this is the vision that he was shown. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Paint this picture in your mind. The angel of the Lord here, most would would say that this is probably a representation of the Lord himself. And so we have either a representative of the Lord or the Lord himself standing in this vision. And notice who else is standing here. And Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So we have the Lord, we have Joshua, and we have Satan there to work against Joshua. Friends, this is what you and I are dealing with. We can't see it with our physical eyes, but this is what we're dealing with, if you will, on a daily basis. Spiritual warfare. And here's how the story unfolds. Verse 2. And the Lord says unto Satan... The Lord rebuke thee. Why is he doing this? Because he is working against God's children. And so he says, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying... Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And when we skip down and read verse 8, which isn't on your screen, he even talks about, I will bring forth my servant, the branch, capital B. Every letter is capitalized, B-R-A-N-C-H. In other words, that's prophecy of the Messiah. 
These short ten verses in this chapter are beautiful to show us how much God loved His children, the remnant of Israel, the the brand that was plucked out of the fire. Almost God's children were destroyed, but God says, I'm going to save a remnant. And from that remnant, Jesus Christ will come to this earth. And now, while God is dealing with His remnant, Satan appears. And Satan is going to fight this. I'm not going to let you save these people. They're wicked. They're filthy. Look at the dirty clothes that he has on. Symbolism of the sins of the people. And right from the beginning of this vision, the Lord turns first to Satan and says, I rebuke you. I wouldn't ever encourage anyone to say, I rebuke you, Satan. We don't see people being able to rebuke Satan. He's more powerful than you and I. Huge, ugly monster and little individual says, I rebuke you, monster. We don't have the power to fight Satan. He can laugh at us and make jokes at us. The only way Satan can be rebuked in our life is when we stand on the side of a God that has the power to rebuke him. Joshua didn't turn around and say, I rebuke you, Satan. Joshua stood before an almighty God that could rebuke Satan. And it's here that he rebukes him, God does, and then turns around to his representation of his people, and he says, now let's take care of those dirty clothes, those sins. Let's put on a new robe. Let's make you clean. Lord, how's that going to happen? The branch. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is going to come. Friends, tonight, I don't know what spiritual warfare looks like in the spiritual sense. We can't describe exactly what Satan looks like. And we can't describe everything about his tactics and his wiles. But we know this. He's real. And you and I can look back in our past and we can see times that we made mistakes that cut us and others to the quick and we can know it was because we allowed Satan's way in our life. And so tonight, the plea is very simple, but it's very awesome. That is, we are all in a symbolic sense in the same vision that Zechariah was seeing. You and I right here, Satan is right here, and the Lord is right here. We can either allow Satan to have his way in our life, or we can have the Lord to have his way in our life. Who do we choose? Satan has wanted to destroy Jesus, mankind, and even the very scheme of redemption from the very beginning. When someone is an enemy of our Redeemer, I know I don't need to choose His side. Tonight, whose side are you on? If you're not wholly on the side of the Lord, whether you like it or not, you are on His side. Don't leave here tonight on the side of Satan. He's for real, and he's bigger, and he has more power than any individual here.
If we don't line up with our Redeemer, we have no hope. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, Jesus says. You need to be baptized into Christ tonight for the remission of your sins because you're a believer, having repented, willing to confess before man. Won't you do that tonight to line up on the side of Jesus Christ? If you've already done that, but yet somewhere in your life you've separated yourself from God, your sins and your iniquities have done that, won't you repent tonight and confess? As we sing this song about Jesus and keeping Him waiting, please also think that as we keep Jesus waiting, we're waiting with our enemy. A terrible place to wait. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.